Hello and welcome to Science Brunch. I'm Mae Prince and I'm here with Katie McKissick, uh, Beatrice the biologist. Oh, is that why I'm in here today? That is. Oh my god, I was like, what are we doing again? Are we recording a show? We are. Okay. And uh, today I'm going to be talking about Sarah Josephine Baker. I don't know who that is. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think you would. Uh, but I'll tell you all about her. But first, what is your uh, science starter for today? Well... The the appetizer to this wonderful science brunch we have for you mm-hmm. is about lichens, which I was just hearing about. So lichens, we've known about them for 150 years. Mm-hmm. Totally understood them, right? I mean, we just like we studied them. But what exactly are oh they? Oh my gosh! So you've probably seen them. They they live on every continent in some really pretty harsh environments. You'll see them on rocks. Sometimes they kind of look like just like some dusting or little kind of, I don't know. How would you describe them? They're just kind of little. little... Are they the, like the flaky looking? Yeah. Dried, papery. Papery. I like green that. stuff. Yeah. Yes. That stuff that you'll see on, on rocks and things. Hmm. So what they are is kind of the first really well understood example of symbiosis. Okay. Which is when things work together and accomplish things. Yay. And so it's a, it's a fungus. And a photosynthetic uh, bacteria or algae, and mm-hmm. they work together. So it's it's kind of a lot like corals, actually. So you know, one provide like so the bacteria, the photosynthetic bacteria provides some food, which it gets you know from sunlight, mm-hmm. and then the fungus gives it this great place to live, and so they kind of share resources and and do really well together. Hooray! It's wonderful. So we've known about them for a really long time, mm-hmm. but someone just made an amazing and a very fundamental discovery about them, which is that it is not just two players. It's a triad. It's two fungus, two kinds of fungus and the, and the bacteria. Huh. Yeah. So it's this, it's the, the fungus they knew about. And then this yeast that's, that's in all of them. They start, they basically found it in one example and what, and how they kind of found it at all was because no one was looking for any new information about, or these people studying them, but no one was looking for like, oh, maybe there's a third thing we've just never known about, even right. though we've been looking at them for 150 years. Um, but there were these two uh, types of lichen that were very similar, but were totally different colors. And mm. so they were just kind of looking into what it was that made them so different. And they kind of just kept taking further and further steps back. They were doing some some DNA analysis and saying, oh yeah, how similar are they? And and then he kind of widened his search and found that some of these these genes of this totally different, you know, and unrelated yeast. And he was like, where'd this come from? And hmm. kind of just stepped back, back it back more and, and started looking at lichens from other places and other continents and comparing and found this yeast in all of them. Wow. And it was like, oh my God, this has just been in here the whole time. And no one's ever noticed. So it didn't even like evolve independently to be different. It's just all lichens are like this. And yeah, we didn't know this it. is the recipe. And we've just and because people truly have been trying to kind of grow them in labs and things. And yeah. they never really seemed to work. And no one really knew why. And it's because huh. it's not two. It's three. Huh. It's like, why isn't this cake working? It's like, well, you forgot the eggs. Yeah. It's like, oh, oh, there's a there's a piece missing. And we just have never been able to, you know, you can't really physically see it very well because they're so well embedded in there and really deep. Like if basically it's the kind of thing that if you weren't looking for it, mm-hmm. you wouldn't find it. And so it was just kind of not a coincidence. I mean, they, yeah. were, they were studying them and just kind of looking from a different angle that no one had, had looked at quite before and was like, oh, wait, what's that? <laughs> and essentially is yeah. kind of what it boils down to. But it's so funny. And I just I love the story so much because it just goes to show that even something that we feel like we totally have a handle on, yeah. we've known about it for 150 years. I mean, it's the reason that we're, that we have the term symbiosis in biology. This was the thing that, you know, someone had to come up with an explanation because before that it was like, oh, nothing works together. It's all just, you know, yeah. competitive, take each other down all the time kind of nature. But so we've known about it for a really long time. And yeah, someone just comes along and goes, oh, actually... So everyone open up your biology textbooks. And throw them away. And well, just just write plus yeast. Yeah. Just rip out some pages. Um, but yeah, I mean, truly, it will be one of those. And this and it happens in biology a lot. And that's why I love biology so much. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I guess I'm being unfair. All branches of science have, have things that kind of shake up the whole system every once in a while. Yeah. And that's what makes it so fun. Um, but yeah, but now... Every single biology textbook, because this is pretty recent, so yeah. every biology textbook out there is now out of date. 
Ta-da! Textbook publishers are so happy right now. <laughs> and that, that was like the one section that they thought they had a handle on. Like it was good to go because well, yeah, been that's what's surprising. Years and they're like, ugh. Because it seems like the stuff that is real. It's it's like it's not surprising that something is surprising in certain areas. We're like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. Well, we knew this was a little fuzzy, so I'm not surprised that there's an earth shattering, really, you know, fundamental thing that we missed or whatever that's going to shake up the whole kind of you know the whole textbook. It's going to distort everything. But this was, yeah, we, we kind of yeah. thought we knew about this one. Science teachers everywhere feel betrayed. They're like, the textbook is 40 years old, but I can rely on the lichen section. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> exactly. Nope. <laughs> you can't even use that. You actually have to buy new textbooks. Yeah. Cheapskate. Now you officially have to buy new textbooks. Yeah. What have you been it's doing? Time. Why are you using such an old one? It's time. <laughs> so Baker, mm-hmm. I don't think she was a baker. No. But she did something. It's true. I can't wait to hear because... I like that we found someone that I have no familiarity with. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to be sitting over here going, huh? The well, whole time. It's funny because she actually, uh, you know, would shorten her name to her initials usually, S.J. Baker. Um, and there was a Josephine Baker who was also alive at the same time. And uh, she was the very famous uh, black entertainer who, you know, she she's very kind of exotic dancer. Do you know who I'm talking about? No. Okay, do some googling. Oh later. my gosh! If anyone recognizes, she she's very famous. And wait, what time period are we talking about? So Sarah Josephine Baker was born in 1873. Okay, okay. And Josephine Baker, I believe, was born in the early 1900s, but was you know kind of alive during. Oh, the so this same is like a roaring twenties sort of yeah. entertainment thing. Okay, yeah, okay. Uh, and she spoke French, and she did a lot of entertaining, like in Paris, and uh, but she was born in the U.S. Okay. So anyway, uh, those two people you may confuse. So you may recognize the the names Josephine Baker. It's probably not the person you're imagining in your head right now. <laughs> um, but uh, Sarah Josephine Baker allegedly did find it amusing when people confused them because they were very nice. different people. Yeah. Wait, so she went by SJ? Well, so here we go. Okay. So she was born November 15th, 1873 in Poughkeepsie, New York. And she was the third daughter in a row in her family. Her father was a lawyer. Her mother was educated at Vassar and was, you know, a housewife. Fancy. They were very well-to-do, didn't have any financial troubles, so that's kind of different from what we've run into in the past. What, what we call on this show a Darwin. A Darwin. They weren't quite Darwins, but they were doing they were doing pretty well. Okay. Um, so her family was financially secure, and uh, she said that she was always trying to make it up to her father for being a girl, because, you know, <laughs> there are three girls in a row, and she did actually have a brother who was th- born three years after her, so, you know, a boy eventually did come around, but she said it was too late. <laughs> she was already a tomboy, like, <laughs> running around. Um, she and her brother actually hung out a lot together. They were very silly. They liked to play pranks on neighbors, um, and this was, you know, in the 1870s, so I don't know, you know, what people thought about tomboy girls back then but she said one of the things that they would do was when the circus was coming to town when they heard that it was coming to town they had this <laughs> kind of uh never do well uh friend of theirs that they supposedly weren't allowed to associate with mm. um and what they would do is she and her brother would go to sleep and they would tie strings around their toes and hang the strings outside the window so that when the friend who was keeping track of when the circus actually came to town, when he saw that they were like pulling in, he would run over to the house and pull on the strings and, and wake their them up. Strings. And then they would crawl out the window and they oh would all God. go down and watch them set up the circus and like bring out the elephants and all of that stuff. Oh, how so cool. That was Man, kind the of toe funny. string thing. I mean, why didn't you? I guess, the, brilliant. Pe- I guess the pebble on the window thing was yeah. maybe too loud or too, too risky loud. or something. I'm going to remember this now. Like, just tie a string on your toe and go to sleep and then have a friend come yank on it. Oh, my God. Yeah. So So brilliant. Very covert operation. And she also was apparently a very compassionate child. Uh, She tells us the first story uh, in her uh, autobiography is about how she was waiting for her mother to come downstairs for, you know, to go somewhere. And she was all dressed up, like all to the nines, like lacy dress, blue ribbon, blue patent shoes, like just totally decked out and she's waiting for her mom on the stoop and she sees this little uh this young girl this young black girl who's about her own age and she walks in front of the house and this girl has very ragged dress she's dirty you know and she just she sees 
Sarah Josephine and she's like, oh my gosh, she's so impressed with her clothing. And uh, Josephine Baker, she went by Joe, by the way. Mm. She was so overcome with this feeling of, I have too much, this girl has nothing, that she stripped off all of her clothing. She said she even <laughs> stripped off her underwear. It's like, and wait, oh, Joe, you can leave your underwear on. Okay. <laughs> she just handed it all over to this girl, and the girl runs away. <laughs> and then Joe's like, oh, no, what's mom going to say? <laughs> so she walks back into the house completely naked. <laughs> but she said her parents are both very understanding about what happened. But it must have been kind of a shock that her mother probably spent, you know, a long time getting right. this kid ready, sends her outside for two minutes, and then the kid walks back in like completely naked, and also all the clothes are gone. Oh my god, <laughs> that's really cute. I mean, and I love, I love that because it's like people like I know that allergies are slightly more common in girls, and we, people actually think it's because we tend to dress little girls up and say, "Don't get your clothes dirty." Ah, interesting. And you know, don't go play in the mud. Yeah, that <laughs> didn't work for they're, her. <laughs> yeah, they're just like, she's just gonna take her clothes out. I don't know, just whatever. Maybe that's what kids are doing. They're like boosting their immunity when they take off all their clothes and run around, you know? Um, so yeah, so she she said that Little Women, which was written by Louisa M. Alcott. She Love was that a book. huge fan of that book. It was very popular at the time among girls her age. And of course, Joe was her favorite character. I think Makes probably because they sense. shared a name and yeah. also Joe was tomboyish yeah, and totally. so was she. And very precocious. Um, and, and she did get to uh, visit or meet Louisa M. Alcott because she would come to like a local sanatorium and, you know, hang out oh, like cool. for health treatments. And so she thought that was she thought that was great. That was her hero. Um, one other funny story from her childhood that she recounted was that she had an old aunt, Abby, who was a Quaker, like her family was mostly Quaker. And, uh, I think they would leave the kids with her on Sunday because they're like, all right, we're going to go to church, but aunt Abby will stay with them and read them Bible stories, you know? And so well, they, they didn't have to go to church. That's a, well, I think they did go occasionally, but like sometimes it was like, oh, we'll just leave that. We'll leave her home Where with them to babysit. Really going, I know. Right. <laughs> Um, but so like Aunt Abby would sit there and read all, you know, four children, all these Bible stories. And then as soon as she was done reading, she would say, none of these stories are true. (laughs) Don't believe this nonsense. And then cookies for everyone. And she said that they never revealed to her parents that Aunt Abby was a non-believer. Smart kid. And just like, you know, crammed them full of lies and then cookies um, she said even after Aunt Abby died, they all kept their silence. They never oh, wow. said anything. And yeah. I think the first time she revealed this was in her autobiography. Oh, my God. <laughs> she wrote amazing. decades later. But I just think it's hilarious because she she well, credits it's that. It's hard for kids to keep secrets, too. That's really impressive. I know. I know. I think they realized what a scandal totally. it would be. Because What's at the stake? whole family thought that Aunt Abby was extremely pious. Right. And, you know, she was just like, no, this is terrible. But she says, uh, I know that was the beginning of my desire to question the right and wrong of all accepted doctrines. So she credits that with her yeah, kind of dude. drive to question and be like, but why? You know what that reminds me of? It's only, it was like one time I went to visit my grandparents and they had gotten some uh, like the muffin trio where it comes with like the bread, like the, oh yeah, the the brand ones or poppy seed ones and blueberry ones and then mm. chocolate muffins. Uh-huh. My grandmother thought they were brand muffins. <laughs> So she was like, Katie, would you like a bran muffin? I was like, yes. I'm not going to tell you what those actually are. Just keep offering them to me. You're like, do you have any bran muffins? Do you have any bran chip cookies? She's like, yes. Those are, these are very branny. So, uh, so Joe went to an unconventional school, which she loved. It was run by these two uh, sisters, I believed, and there were no grades, no exams, no so nothing. So it was Montessori school. It was kind of, yeah, but it's like they, it, she said, whenever they thought you were well-versed in a subject, they would just move you up to the next level. Neat. And it was, they were so trusted by the colleges in that area that they didn't even have to pass any exams. Like there, there were no test grades that you usually need to get into college. They would just write a letter to the colleges and say, this woman is ready. And then they would take them. Oh my God. Yeah, Can so, we do this again? I know, right? Um, so she was by age 16, she was prepared to enter any women's college. And she said that she would have been able to enter at a sophomore level. Like she was super ready, but at 16, her brother died suddenly, I believe of typhoid. And then shortly thereafter, her father also died. Oh, come on. 
Yeah. So this created a difficult situation because her father had been the breadwinner for the family. And while they were very well to do... Was there life insurance back then? I don't know, but it wasn't enough. Right. Um, So basically their household was left without a breadwinner. So she decided well, I'm going to step up and I'm going to take care of the family financially. How do I do that? I will become a physician. So the thing was, is that women physicians weren't unheard of at that time. I believe the first woman got her medical degree in like, I don't know, the mid 1800s, something like that. But they were very rare. So she had only ever heard of one personally and um, her whole family objected to this course of action. Oh, like, man. no, you know, this is a terrible course. You're going to just waste money on medical school. Boo. And, I mean, what was their plan? I love to hear their plan. Well, I don't know. But she said the entire family was against her. They were all aghast about this hair-brained and unwomanly scheme. But she was like, whatever, I'm doing it. I love unwomanly schemes. Yeah, I know. And her mother eventually came around. She was like, well, if you're going to do it, I'm going to support you. Oh, that's nice. So that was nice. So she ended up, uh, instead of going to Vassar, as had been planned her entire life, and, you know, she had, she had always, she said she had accepted the course of the normal female life at that time, which was go to college, get married, have family. Like, go to college just for fun. She said... <laughs> She was perfectly content to do that until, you know, this happened and then her kind of life course changed. Um, So she ended up going to the Women's Medical College of the New York Infirmary at the age of 20. So this is 1894. And that college had been founded by two sisters, Elizabeth and Emily Blackwell. And Elizabeth Blackwell was the first woman to graduate with a, a medical degree in 1849 in the United States. Or that actually name sounds Britain, familiar. Yeah. So... The, the whole, like, women getting MDs thing had been around for less than 50 years at that point. Okay. So it kind of gives you an idea. Like, it wasn't, like I said, unheard of, but it was very rare. Yeah. But still to this day, there's that, have you heard that brain teaser? A man and his son are rushed to the hospital, mm-hmm. and they, they have to put the son into the OR because he, he needs a surgery right away, and they get him in there, and the doctor goes, I can't operate on this kid. He's my son. Mm-hmm. And people, and you, and that's the brain teaser, and you're supposed to explain, like, how this is happening. And people will, because you said man and son and doctor, like, you just associate them so strongly that people will come up with the most harebrained, <laughs> impossible explanations for this, but they'll never be like, oh, the surgeon is a woman, it's his mom. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, I've, I've actually heard that one before, but yeah. But now that we're talking about this, it's, it's ruined. It's terrible that that's the same. So, so women have, so women have been doctors for 50 years. Which is funny because when you say doctor, people still picture a man. And it, yeah. you actually have to kind of steer, so, steer them. So women have been still, getting medical degrees yeah. in this country for more than 160 years. And yeah, and we it's still, still have just, that yeah, bias. Like just totally imprinted that way. It's very unfortunate. Um, but, but so she anyway, she started medical school. And she, she recounts that she took this one course that was uh, taught about how to identify what, a nor- what makes up a normal child as opposed to just studying what's, you know, sicknesses and disease. Oh, okay, like, gotcha, And yeah. so this was kind of not a very common thing. I think this was one of the first courses of its kind where it was like, let's figure out what should be first <laughs> before we what decide what's abnormal right. and, you know, needs to be treated. And she said that she was not interested in this course. She kind of just blew through it. She's like, whatever. I don't care. This is stupid. Why are we doing this? Health is the worst. And big surprise, she flunked it (laughs) and had to retake it the next year. And she was so mad that she had to retake this stupid course that she just killed it. She was like, well, I'm just going to learn all of it <laughs> and then I'll pass it and I'll get out of so it. So she like like overcompensated. So yeah, she like so memorized the textbook. She read she things she needed need to read. She notes. She like studied everything about it. And this ended up actually creating kind of the foundation of what she would do later. So love it. Yeah. It was a very good thing that she flunked this course. She and did had it out to of take spite. It twice. Yeah. Out of spite. But it worked out. <laughs> she, she tended to, I think to do a lot of things kind of not out of spite, but out of stubbornness, right. just like, well, I'll show you. Yeah. And then, yeah. <laughs> so, um, she ended up getting her MD in 1898 and she supposedly graduated second in her class of 18. So she did very well. And then she went to do an internship in Boston. And it was at that point that she came to kind of understand the connection between poverty and poor health, because she was dealing with a lot of, um, you know, 
people in that lived in very filthy conditions at that time you know there were a lot of immigrant populations that were kind of relegated to these very filthy dilapidated tenements in all of americans all of the, you know america's cities and so she was sent into these situations where there was like no running water everything was dirty um, everyone was using like, you know, basins to wash. Well, and what are they eating even? What so. are they eating? How are they storing the food? Everything is overheated, you know? And so she, she tells us one story of her internship. So, you know, she's like 20 ish <laughs> and she goes to help this woman who's in labor and she gets there to find out that, uh, the woman has like these scalding burns all on her back and she's like, what is going on? What's wrong with you? And the woman says, oh, you know, my husband threw boiling water on me the other day. And then the, the husband is there drunk <sighs> and he gets up and is angry and starts, you know, trying to beat the woman because she told everyone, you know, what was happening. And so Joe runs out in the hallway to lure him out there. And then he runs out there and she punches him. Nice. And he falls down the stairs and you know, slides into the landing and she's like, well, he might be dead, but I have to deliver this baby. <laughs> she's like, hmm, I might need to patch that up later, yeah. but whatever. <laughs> so she goes back in, she blocks the door with some furniture. She delivers the baby. Hardcore. Yeah. And then this is all, this is an internship, you know, <laughs> trial by fire. And then when she leaves, she's exhausted, but she's like, oh, that guy is still at the bottom of the stairs. So she knocks on a neighbor's door and is like, hey, can you help me? make sure this guy is still alive. And so they go down there and the, the neighbors are just like kicking him and poking him like, huh? and the guy's not moving. And she's like, Oh my God. Oh my God. I killed, killed him. him. But then the guy just started cursing. <laughs> and she said it was the sweetest sound I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> she's like, yeah, I'm not a murderer. So she said she learned from that situation. She's like, try not to kill anyone while you're out on your internship <laughs> rounds. Um, so after the internship, she came back to New York and she started a practice with another woman physician. At this point, she's 25 years old and they don't have that much business, but they have enough to kind of scrape by. And she said they were the only women practicing medicine on the west side above 59th Street. And so they actually got a lot of women clients who came to them because they were female physicians. Oh. So that was a very rare thing. And, you know, women were kind of looking for the women woman. at that point. You are woman. Exactly. You understand my woman. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, that was a rare thing. Like before then, you never had a doctor delivering your kid or, you know, giving you advice about pregnancy who had ever been pregnant. Right. And there were midwives, but they were not licensed in any way. And, you know, it was kind of like the Wild West. So she was in New York. They were kind of trying to handle the practice. She got involved in the suffrage movement while she was there. I mean, this was, you know, a good 20 years before women got the right to vote in the U.S. And she also joined a group called Heterodoxy, which was a women's discussion group. And it had this radical reputation. It, it included a lot of like lesbian and bisexual women. And they actually had to change locations where they met each time because they wanted to avoid government scrutiny. So it was kind of like they were seen as radicals Rebels. yeah um you guys want to sit around and talk that cannot happen <laughs> that can't, don't talk <laughs> so yeah so she said that you know she was in favor of women's suffrage as a matter of common justice and one of the, one of the most interesting things that i i read that she said about that was that she was under no uh, delusion that women were better than men or you know whatever she said there are bad women in our ranks just as there are bad men in their ranks but I still believe that women have something to offer this sick world that men either do not have or have not offered. And that was like one of the best explanations yeah. I've ever come across because there's always this drive to say, well, women and men offer different things. And it's like that difference is not necessarily based on your gender. It's more based on what you're willing and able to offer. Right. So that was, I don't know. I really like that quote about that. Um, she's good with words. She's good with words. She's good at words. So the practice was barely scraping by. So she took up a part-time civil service job with the city's Department of Health, and this was in New York, as a medical inspector. And part of that was, you know, she's working in an all-male environment, and she decided that she would try to minimize her femininity and, you know, her appearance as a woman so that she wouldn't stick out and so that men weren't automatically like, oh, there's a woman, like... <laughs> 
And so she went and she got all these, you know, suits tailored in men's fashion. She wore ties and high collars so that at a glance, when you look across a room, you would not notice so that no, there like, was a woman So no, like, neon pink dresses. No neon pink dresses. No even, you know, colorful pantsuits, mm-hmm. as is today's trend. But she said that she blended in kind of so well that men in, in speaking to her would forget that she was a woman. So she, <laughs> she talks about how this one guy was, you know, he was talking about women in the office. And he's like, oh, they're such a distraction. They're terrible. <laughs> they don't know what they're doing. They're she's not like, good yeah, at teamwork. Man, I know. And she's like, who do you think you're talking to? And he was like, oh, I totally forgot you were a lady. <laughs> <laughs> and so oh my God. she kind of took it in stride. She was like, oh, these idiots. But... You know, she got by. So backing up a second. So she's in the medical examiner's office. So this is... It's the Department of Health. So she was working in the Department of Health as a medical inspector. So what she, her first assignment was, was to go to schools and try to find any children with infectious diseases. Oh. So basically at that time, the way that they did it was, you know, a teacher has, I don't know, a billion kids in a classroom. <laughs> and if they notice one, there's like, oh, I think that one might have cholera. That one's turning green. Yeah. I think something's Then they wrong. refer it to that child, to the, the head office. And uh. then the medical inspector, her, Joe, comes around and like looks at the kid and okay. then determines whether or not they need to be sent home or, you know, quarantined or okay, whatever. thank you. Because, yeah, so I think I was going for medi- thinking of medical examiners. I'm like, wait, so is she looking at dead bodies of no, murdered people? No, not dead bodies, <laughs> pre-dead bodies, um, still living children. But she said that the problem was that she, the, the culture of the office was very lazy. And she said most of the guys never even went out to the schools to look at, the, at you know, the kids and figure out if they're sick or not. And so disease is just running rampant and they're collecting a paycheck. And, you know, she was, again, stubborn. So she's like, whatever, (sighs) I'm going to do better. So she went out there and, you know, was figuring that stuff out. She was also instrumental in finding typhoid Mary. Have you heard Mm -hmm. of typhoid? Sounds familiar, right? It's a phrase that we use these days. So typhoid Mary, Mary Mallon, she was an asymptomatic carrier of typhoid, which means that she was able to infect others with typhoid and they would get sick and die but she was just fine yeah so the problem was that she was working as a cook for different families and she didn't believe in washing her hands because why should she <laughs> so i agree that's a terrible idea this, don't ever wash your this hands. one doctor was like trying to trace these typhoid epidemics that were breaking out across the city and he eventually found out that you know like several of the families all used her as a cook and so he's trying to track her down and he he wanted you know he finally found her and was like i need a urine and stool sample so that i can evaluate you and figure out what's going on because at that point she was the first asymptomatic case that they had found they didn't even know what was going on they didn't realize that someone could be walking around infecting people and not be sick themselves and so he found her and she was like no <laughs> get away from me <laughs> and so to the point where i mean when strangers come up to me and say i want some of your pee i just i i, I usually don't give it to them no, i'm just kidding yeah yeah i know it's it, it's a weird request <laughs> but he was like really we think you're infecting all these people yeah. and they're dying there's actually a really big problem though so please just do it yeah and so she refused and it got to the point where they're like, well, we need to arrest you and detain you because we think you're causing this epidemic. We don't understand it. <laughs> so Joe was sent out to try to apprehend her. And that was because, you know, she was a woman. Mary Mellon was a woman. Makes sense. You talk to this crazy woman, please. Yeah. Meanwhile, Mary <laughs> Mellon, when she show, when Joe shows up, wants to like try to stab her with a fork and oh then ran away God. to the point where the, the police officers that were accompanying Joe had to chase her down. And then Joe said she had to sit on her. <laughs> To keep her from running away again. Wow. I didn't, I mean, I knew about typhoid and I knew she's preparing food and all that stuff. I had no idea she was so bonkers. Yeah. She was kind of bonkers. And and the thing was, is that they ended up, you know, taking her back and evaluating her and, you know, finding out and and they thought that she was carrying and passing it along, something having to do with her gallbladder, like the, it was being stored in her gallbladder. So they're like, well, we'll just remove your gallbladder and then you'll be fine. And she was like, no. <laughs> and, so, and then she stabbed them and ran. And so they just held on to her for three years. They Ooh. kept her in quarantine and isolation. Oh, my. And eventually they agreed to let her go as long as she didn't go back to cooking for people. Because that was a very, like, sensitive thing. Like, you're you're making things yeah, that you can't people be are trusted. putting in their mouths and bodies. Yeah. And so she, ended, she was like, okay, fine. And so she ended up working in a laundry 
for a couple years, but then she wasn't making enough money. It was more money as a cook. So she started cooking again without telling anybody. Oh, man. And guess what? No. Typhoid outbreak again. No. And so this doctor who had been tracking her, like, saw that there were these additional typhoid outbreaks. And he's like, she's at it again. (laughs) And so Joe went back out and brought her in again. And this time they held her in confinement for the rest of her life because she never agreed to get her gallbladder removed. And that was another. And she's like, so inconsiderate that she can't possibly yes, like wash her hands she and just not infect people. Believe them, and so wow. she was held in confinement for another twenty-three years. Does typhoid make you crazy? I have no Does idea. Does typhoid make you a sociopath? I'm not sure they ever figured out what was going on because she wouldn't agree to kind of that kind wow. of medical testing. So anyway, that is Bananas. one of the things that Joe is known for is for tracking down typhoid Mary twice, and yeah. you know, basically being risk stabbed by a fork to for for health yeah you know and a dirty fork because typhoid mary was <laughs> holding t- it with a typhoid fork yeah <laughs> those are the worst kinds of forks so in 1907 joe was made assistant commissioner of health and she worked on a number of like high profile you know issues health issues and she became interested in infant mortality and the reason was was at the time you know all of these slums and tenements and everything 1500 babies routinely died every week from various things mostly like diarrhea related conditions you know you just get so dehydrated and she she famously said it's six times safer to be a soldier in the trenches of france than to be born in the a baby in the united states so it was it was really bad and it was really really common she she talks about how common um you know funerals for babies were like it was just terrible And she said, at the time, doctors were usually only called to treat people after they became sick. But she had this epiphany where she was like, well, the way to keep people from dying is to start treating them beforehand to prevent disease. This whole preventative health care (laughs) thing that we still haven't gotten right to this day. People are still like, we don't need to pay insurance for preventative health. But she was like, no, this is the way to do it. And this all came from kind of her normal child course that she took in medical school, right. which was, well, let's just maintain normal. Yeah. Let's identify what, does, what, what does normal healthy is look like? and let's maintain it. Right. So she started this small pilot, you know, experiment while she was going around like uh, helping people. And what she did was she took a team of nurses door to door and they taught the mothers about nutrition, cleanliness, and ventilation. And they were all very basic concepts. So keep the kids from overheating, dehydrating, eating infected milk, you know, and she did this by uh, encouraging breastfeeding as opposed to, you know, formula or outside milk because then oh, we were to... already on formula at this time. Well, you know, you have to put it in a dirty bottle and, yeah, you know, man, whatever. So, and the mothers had to work and all that. So it's this kind of mess of issues uh but what she found out at the end of her pilot study was more than a thousand fewer neonatal deaths happened during that pilot study and everywhere else in the city the rates remained unchanged so clearly some good data just basic basic care was having a huge impact on the infant mortality rate in a good way so they were so successful that the Department of Health was like, oh, okay, well, we're just going to create a bureau for you, and you're going to do this. You're going to do this more. And so it, it was the first bureau like this in the country. It was called the Bureau of Child Hygiene. Oh. And her entire focus of her career was preventative care by keeping children clean and healthy. Because, you know, they're like little disease monsters. Um, so well, she they're, And they're so susceptible to everything. Exactly. I mean, they just, they're so helpless and their immune systems are like, what? <laughs> you want me to do what? Yeah. So she developed all these different types of programs during her time there. And this was all in a very short amount of time. And it's crazy to think that nothing like this existed anywhere in the country in these conditions that were so deplorable that no one thought, hey, maybe we should teach people how to, you know, live cleaner or, you know, Oof, yeah. try to handle stuff. So, so, what, so what year are we in right now? So this was 1908. Oh, my God. She was 34. Okay. So she's put in charge of this huge program, and she's like, well, I'm going to do it. And so she goes out. She sets up milk stations with free pasteurized milk. She does standard inspections of school children for contagious diseases. She establishes the practice of having school nurses. Wow. So this is why we have school nurses. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 
And uh, she set up licensing for midwives, so people aren't just out there doing whatever they feel like. Like, they actually have some training. And she invented a simple baby formula that mothers could mix at home. So it became easier to feed children. It became more sanitary. She also noticed that a lot of children were going blind because of, uh, like, gonorrhea transmission from the mother. And there was a very simple solution of, you know, treating their eyes with silver nitrate, of putting like dropping it in their eyes but the problem was is that the containers themselves would touch their eyes and become contaminated and then it wouldn't ever solve the problem so she invented these little kind of beeswax capsules a single dose you know of the silver nitrate and that solved the problem basically it was just like simple steps that had enormous impact and that no one had thought of doing before Yeah, and the other thing she did was uh, she developed kind of a new clothing pattern for newborn babies that would allow like easy layering and easy changing because a lot of the babies were just being overly clothed and then would either suffocate or become too hot, you know, because they're in these hot tenement houses. Right. And so she made this, McCall's picked up the pattern and it was very easy and cheap for people to make. And it just helped kind of so like keep the, first the babies onesie? cool. Yeah. <laughs> the first cotton onesie. The first onesie. onesie. You know, this, this, this practice that we have of like, just buy a million onesies <laughs> and just keep washing them. That was what where this started. Oh this idea God. of just buy something simple mm-hmm. that's easy to take on and off. And whenever it gets dirty, just throw it in the wash. That's what she did. Another thing she did was she made a bunch of baby stations, you know, to kind of help educate mothers. And she also created the Little Mothers League in 1910. And this was to train girls who were 12 and older in basic infant care. So the issue was a lot of mothers were had to work. And so they would have a baby, but then just leave it at home, either unattended or with siblings who didn't know anything about how to care for a baby. And so her whole thing was, well, let's train these teenage girls, you know, the proper way to care for a baby. And then that way their mothers can go off to work and earn more money. And then the whole family is better off. It's a cycle. I mean, it's this whole idea. And, of, and the baby just isn't on the floor for exactly, eight hours. Or exactly. God, I mean, that was the eight hour work, work day was not a thing yet. So no, God, like it was like a 12 hour work day. Oh God. Uh, so that's so terrible. Educating siblings to care for, you know, their younger siblings also had just a huge impact on infant mortality and, you know, made things safer and healthier and everything. Um, And she also organized the Babies Welfare Association, which was kind of a way to garner public support and organize all the different agencies around the city who also had an interest in providing childcare services. So it's just it's just crazy, like this this basic concept of childcare at its most basic was instrumental in kind of furthering the economic lives of women. And, you know, so that all started with her. And from 1908 to 1918, New York City's infant mortality fell from 144 to 88 per thousand live births. Wow. That is an enormous drop, you know? And that was within 10 years. 10 years of just basic stuff. Yeah, practically cutting it in half. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. And it's not like she invented a new medicine or cured typhoid or anything. Yeah, just organized, well-thought-out plans. Yep. Yep. Not everyone was happy about this. Uh, baby coffin makers. <laughs> Close. Uh, so she said that a bunch of Brooklyn doctors went so far as to petition the mayor to shut down her bureau uh, because they said it was hurting business. What? Let's take a moment to just eye roll. Um, she said the only thing she would have enjoyed more would have been, quote, a similar protest from an undertaker's association. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, because well, like, well, they, because these people were keeping their babies healthy and not going to the doctor with like a baby near death. Exactly. Because by because of course by the time they would go, like you were saying, the exactly. babies like have minutes to live. Yep. Or something, or maybe because yep. doctors were only treating sickness, they weren't providing preventative care yet. I mean, now we go to the doctor, we get a checkup, we get vaccines, we get our blood work done. That these, did these not doctors exist. were like, I haven't seen a, a dying baby in a while. This is terrible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so her attitude is basically, haters going to hate. Yeah. I don't care. I'm going to keep going. Yeah. Um, so in 1916, she started lecturing at New York University Bellevue Hospital Medical School. And she lectured on, you know, child hygiene every year for them. 
And she said that she would do it in exchange for the opportunity to enroll in their new public health course, which had not been open to women. And so she became the first one to receive a doctorate of public health from NYU. Nice. Yeah. So in addition to being a medical doctor, she also had, you know, her PhD in the field. And just to put that in context, it was a mere 40 years before that, that the first woman earned a PhD in any field. Oh, wow. In the U.S. Okay. Um, And then it was also... Also context, 12 years before the first woman earned the first her first PhD in physics in the U.S. Okay. So those are kind of, I mean, it gives you a sense of the educational environment and how difficult it was to right. become an expert in the field, even though you were already. I mean, the only way to become, to get a doctorate for her was to already become an expert in the field, which is kind of, you know, chicken egg thing, yeah. but whatever. Among the things she did, she published three books on children's health in the 1920s. And she wrote hundreds of articles for publication in journals and professional, you know, publications, all about kind of centered on the child hygiene issue and preventative care. And she had promised herself that she would retire once every state had a similar program. And well, that's that's a very well, reasonable request. Once I guess. everyone saw her results. They just popped up like weeds really? all over the country. Oh, that's awesome. So by the time that she was 50, I think it was all the states in the union had a bureau like hers. My face just lit up. I'm like, are you serious? I know. That's crazy. So she that's retired awesome. at 50. She was like, well, I'm out. <laughs> well, I said that thing a while ago, uh, and I am a, a woman of my word. And yep. so goodbye. <laughs> exactly. I think she probably thought she was going to retire at like... I don't know, 400 years old. Yeah, she's like, well... And instead, she's like, oh, well, oh, okay. oh I'm leaving. <laughs> she's like, wait, wait, can the last state... Uh, Hawaii, can you hold on a second? <laughs> I don't think Hawaii... Hawaii wasn't yeah, even sorry. a state. I was, I was just, as I said, I was I like, know. wait a minute. It was crazy. Um, so that's why we now have kind of departments of health and preventive care and, you know, watching out for infectious diseases. That's why that exists all over the country and why our infant mortality rate isn't terrible like it was a hundred years ago yeah so by the time she retired um you know the infant mortality rate had just dropped like crazy she continued to serve on committees medical societies professional societies she lectured she consulted she even represented the u.s health committee at the league of nations and was the president for the american medical women's association in the mid-1930s so I've already said, you know, she dressed kind of in a mannish fashion to kind of blend into her field and not stand out as much. It helped her a little bit in garnering support and respect from her male colleagues who were not used to taking any orders from a woman. I mean, she ran the whole bureau herself, so she had to manage a lot of manpower and a lot of male resentment, I I imagine. it's, It's hard to tell exactly... Uh, what her sexual orientation was you know she dressed she dressed like a man for most of her professional life she wasn't um opposed to wearing you know feminine clothing and uh, in fact (laughs) she showed up to a a party an office party once uh dressed a little less mannish than usual and her colleagues were like well we just wanted to see if you would wear a dress (laughs) when you didn't have to you know when you didn't have to wear a tie so perhaps related perhaps unrelated she most likely was a lesbian. And, you know, it's hard to tell exactly because she destroyed all of her personal papers. But she actually, she lived with a woman starting, I think, in the in the 1920s. She met Ida Wiley in 1920, who was an Australian-British-American novelist, screenwriter, short story writer, and poet. She actually, you know, wrote some books that later became movies. Uh, she was, you know, fairly successful. And they lived together until Joe's death, uh, much later and she destroyed all of her well joe destroyed her own papers and i think that's one indication of you know they weren't out as a couple and it was it wouldn't have been acceptable right, yeah. but at that time there was kind of a somewhat of a blind eye turned towards slightly different living arrangements as long as it wasn't interpreted as a relationship if that makes any sense right yeah it was back then when people were just like well as long as you're not doing anything that right that's that i don't like and <laughs> and i think i think what may have helped is that they actually lived with a third woman as well ida wiley so, so two so two women would be like lesbians three women yeah. is like they just like being yeah, around each exactly. other just and, they, out. and they were they were known as the girls the and they all girls. lived together forever and you know that's funny uh, ida continued to live with the other woman after joe's death 
Ida was kind of known as, you know, a, a masculine figure and she was she was called uncle by her friends. So there's all this kind of indirect evidence. But right. it's it's fairly obvious and I'm not sure it has anything to do with the way that Joe decided to dress. <laughs> well, it sounds like it just kind of worked out. Like maybe she was it it worked in her job for what she wanted to accomplish and wanted people to to not kind of label her or judge her just based on her appearance right away just like give me a couple extra seconds before you judge me yeah you know, think, based on and that. she was a confirmed bachelorette she never right. married she so never worked for that and maybe she also just like really dug wearing awesome suits <laughs> so <true>. it probably <laughs> just kind of worked out that way yeah and I, I think it helped for her she was already leading a very non-traditional life for a woman and so she just kind of embraced that fully and uh, maybe it helped that, you know, if she if she was actually lesbian, because then she could comfortably live a weird lifestyle yeah, without ever having to worry about having a husband who, you know, might not approve or it might make it look even stranger if you were someone's wife who was also running a bureau, you know? Yeah, actually, I mean, so it, it just, it worked out beautifully. <laughs> Good job. So, yeah, she lived in New Jersey until her death in 1945. She died of cancer and she was 71. Uh, But she was extremely successful. She published her autobiography in 1939. It's called Fighting for Life. And it's pretty hilarious. Like, she's a great writer. Yeah, that's Um, awesome. Apparently, Ida helped her a little bit, they think, uh, because the phrase fighting for life also appears in some of her writings. So, yeah, it's just, it's delightful. Another relationship bonus. (laughs) When you have the editor in-house who can help you. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, I just, I loved learning about her. It's crazy to think how much impact she had. I mean, she's credited with saving basically every infant life since 1908. Yeah, I mean... Based on basic hygiene. Hundreds of thousands of of tiny lives. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, and it kind of made cities possible in a way i mean at that point people were just living in filth and people and kids were dying all the time well, yeah i mean and new york at that time was was pretty pretty grody yeah I it, mean, was, it was it was really it was grody. nasty i mean like i mean yeah it makes sense that public health would start there because yeah, it was just it was just a mess because you have i you have immigrants from all over that have all the kinds of different rituals yeah. around death too so i know that there are a lot of public health problems that came from people disposing of dead bodies like in their backyard Mm -hmm. and then the water table would rise and it'd be like oh look there's uncle joe again he's back up above the ground whoops (laughs) (laughs) yeah and obviously people didn't understand the importance of washing their hands i mean typhoid mary didn't get it Mm she's like but why i'm not sick and and no one understood why you would ever go to the doctor if you weren't already sick so she changed all of that. She just kind of reoriented the whole system towards preventative care as opposed to just treating people who were most likely going to die already. This reminds me of the Poisoner's Handbook the by Deborah Bloom because a lot of it takes place a little bit after this. I think it kind of picks up in the teens and 20s mm-hmm. when they have to figure out, oh, this person died. We have to figure out all the ways to test a body for, for poisons to hmm. see what it was that actually killed them. Yeah. So kind of the same thing because <laughs> sometimes i mean because yeah sometimes it was like oh someone poisoned you they tried to kill you yeah but sometimes you get poisoned by accident yeah by environmental they, yeah. factors or or drinking uh you know poisoned alcohol during prohibition and stuff too yeah it was really really fun <laughs> times it was super great <laughs> but i think she would be a blast to have brunch with i mean totally. she's from new york so she probably had brunch anyway that's where brunch <laughs> was born you know no totally she sounds awesome i love that she was the one that came in and was like, oh, hey, so I know we've been doing this thing where we just wait till everyone's at death's door to, to discuss anything. But what about what about health? Yeah. What about that? And they were all like, what? Health? Boo. <laughs> yeah, we exactly. hate health. I mean, those Brooklyn doctors who objected were, they were literally like, yeah. health boo. Yeah. This is hurting my business. I know that there are cultures where you pay your doctor when you're healthy mm. and you don't pay them when you get sick. Because it's like, you failed. Yeah. Why would I pay you when I get sick? You're supposed to keep me healthy. Like, and it just, it's one of those, because yeah, we take it for, I think I heard that in a TED talk or something, because it's like, we take for granted that it's supposed to work this way, but it's just arbitrary. You could just as easily pay your doctor for on the days that you're healthy and because they're actually doing their job. Yeah. You know? It's like the doctor, yeah, paying the doctor insurance. Right, right. But, um, but no, I just, I love that. And it's, 
when you were telling me about about how like she was taking the class about oh it's it, let's do talk about health first she was like boo health that's so yeah. boring <laughs> it, it reminds me like my grandfather used to teach the pathology course uh-huh. at New Jersey Medical School <laughs> like and he what happens in those courses when all you're talking about is sickness is that he would about like halfway through the semester, all the medical students would come and be like, I think I have this. And then like insert bizarre, like one in a trillion, you know, billion kind of disease, one yeah. in a trillion, good Lord. But you know, these like really, really rare diseases that you have to learn about because you yeah. also learn how, how things work by studying how they could, can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of our medical knowledge is based on very strange uh, mutations or v- right. very strange metabolical disorders. And I was like, well, ah. But, but yeah, so you'd always have the students that came and they're like, I think I have the disease we were talking about today. Like, because I had this one symptom and he's like, you don't have it. <laughs> you, you don't have the plague. Calm down. <laughs> It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I thought she was great. And I was particularly tickled by the fact that she thought it was funny that people confused her with Josephine Baker, yeah. the entertainer. That rocks. And she's just like, huh, funny. <laughs> So to be like SJ, all you have to do is go into an ancient profession and totally disrupt it. Mm-hmm. Easy. Mm-hmm. Easy and, and save hundreds and thousands of lives. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's no big deal. Yeah. We can do that. Easy. I mean, we're, like, that's what this podcast is doing. <laughs> we're just disrupting the entire system. And we're saving lives. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Thank you, SJ, for being so much cooler than us. <laughs> We owe you so much. Her legacy is probably disrupting an entire, you know, way of thinking with common sense. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. That's a cool legacy. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, but why are we doing it this yeah. way? I mean, this all goes Question back. Question everything. This all goes back to, you know, the Bible stories told to her by Aunt Abby. It was like, here's the way things are and what everyone believes. It's not true but guess what (laughs) that's awesome supposedly you know that's what made her question things later and say well not accept things just as they are because they're these just so stories like oh no we only see dead babies we don't want to see live ones yeah but she was like but why don't you want us to have them wait what yeah so it's great i really enjoyed this two thumbs up Well, that's it for this episode of Science Brunch. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check out our website, sciencebrunch.org. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe and do all of those things. Unless you already have, in which case you can totally just, you know, go on with your day. Thanks.